0: good morning everyone um, we're going to pray but you're going to also want to get ready uh, to read from Genesis 29 this morning just want to welcome everyone and um, just struck this morning about how how amazing it is that God brings us all together puts us together in church families and just what he does as we relate one to another and care for one another and love one another and support one another and so i encourage you to uh, join with me as we pray this morning corporately heavenly father we are so just grateful for your work in our lives that you have revealed yourself to us that you have poured your love out to us that you have called us, that you've are working in ways in varying degrees with each one of us here today. And Lord, we are just in awe of who you are, of your majesty, of your power, of your glory, of your goodness, of your love. Lord, Lord, that you are sovereign, that you rule and reign over all, in perfect control and able to work the situations of our lives out for our good and your glory. Just a miracle. And so, Father, this morning, we just lift all these things to you our lives to you, our troubles our concerns, our worries the things that we face the sin that we are struggling with in our lives the pressures that we feel Lord we come to you with it all just lay it at your feet we thank you God that we can trust you look to you that you are with us and that you are changing us, that there is nothing too big in our lives for you. There is nothing too big, no sin too big, no situation too big. And so, Lord, we just individually and corporately give ourselves to you today, look to you. Thank you for your your leading, your direction. God, we thank you for your will being done in our lives. Thank you for giving us everything that we need today. As far as our our natural things, but everything that we need today for life and godliness. Everything that we need to serve you. Everything that we need to repent and to deal with sin in our lives. God, thank you for forgiving us as we come to you. And the more we know of you, the more we grow in you, the more we realize how that repentance is just moment by moment. Lord, just humbling ourselves before you, and that's what we want to grow in, God, is our our love and obedience to you, our desire for you, and our, just to grow in humbleness before you. God, we thank you for leading us. Lord, for guiding us, delivering us from every evil thing that we face. And God, we thank you again for your kingdom, your power, your glory. everything you are that you are actively at work in our lives and in this church and in your church worldwide thank you for this day we thank you for this word that we're going to hear and we ask that you would speak to each one of us convict us draw us to you we ask these things in your amazing name So we're continuing with Genesis 29. It says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, The shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attracted to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Levi. And she conceived again, and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Father, speak to us through your word.
1: Good morning. Our, our text this morning doesn't expressly make any theological points. There is no command from God. There's no conclusion drawn by the narrator. Instead, the narrative itself unfolds its theological lessons in a a subtle way. There are, are themes in the Bible that are so consistent, so common to the story of God's chosen people that they are often portrayed without comment for us to meditate on and see that these things are true in our own lives as well. Leading up to this passage, Jacob has begun a journey, which at the first was to save his own skin. His elder brother is murderous uh, because he has uh, acquired his inheritance and blessing by the deception of their blind father. He had put on the clothes of his brother and passed himself off as him and So in order to save his life from Esau, Rebekah, his mother, convinced Isaac, his father, that Jacob should be sent away to seek a wife from among her father's people. This, we saw, was God's providence as Isaac had failed to protect his sons from intermarriage with the Canaanite peoples as his father had done for him. And so now this journey has two purposes, to save his life and to find a wife. But in the second Half of chapter 28, the last chapter, God interrupted Jacob's journey. He gives it new purpose and assurance by granting him the promises of Abraham and of Isaac and new unconditional blessings for his mission. And so in Genesis 28:15, he says, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised you. And so now it is with the assurance of success and with God's presence, with him to bless and keep him, Jacob continues his journey with newfound confidence and resolve. In verse 1, then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, and he looked and he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone in the well's mouth was large, and when the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. And while he was speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she saw, for she was a shepherdess. Sorry. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. Jacob told Laban, all these things, and Laban said to him, "Surely you are my bone and my flesh." And he stayed with him a month. Jacob's first interaction in Haran uh, actually show us the better parts of his character. In his judgment, the shepherds have brought the sheep in from the pasture too early. He says, "It's too, too early. The sun's still in the sky. Water the sheep and go back to the pasture. Uh, They are not working as hard or for as long as diligent shepherds should be. And the sheep would lack because of it. They weren't given enough time to eat all they could. And so he basically tells these guys, go back to work. And in contrast with the lazy shepherds, Jacob here is zealous and industrious Later, he will be shown to be a hardworking and shrewd shepherd himself. After his experience with God on the road, Jacob has a new spring in his step and a drive to accomplish his mission that we haven't yet seen in his character. The shepherds imply that it will take more men than are present to remove the large rock covering the well, and this is why they're waiting for backup. But upon Rachel's arrival, Jacob will not be held up. God was with him, and he is on a divinely directed mission. And so he single-handedly rolls away the stone and begins to water his uncle's sheep. And so it's no wonder that in Jewish tradition, Jacob is actually thought to be a giant. There's all these men sitting around waiting for more men to come, and so they're like, he must have been huge. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that Jacob was large, but it does tell us here that he is zealous and goes to work right away. And the rock, which was uh, big enough that these guys were waiting for some more help to come along, Jacob just like, oh, it's time to water these sheep, moves it out of the way. His, his best character traits are shown. And he, he's quite impressive here in this part. But these events are a curious reversal of the previous well scene where Abraham's servant, in chapter 24, came to Haran to find a wife for Isaac. And these stories are almost exact parallels. Uh, The journey to Haran, the providential meeting at a well, the girl returns home to report the meeting to her family, and then the man is then brought into the girl's house, all which ultimately results in a marriage. But Abraham's wise servant had prayerfully arranged for Rebekah, Jacob's mother, to water his livestock, in order to assess her character. His assessment of her as a wife uh, is based on what he sees, and he is also uh, prayerfully doing this and determining God's choice before selecting her as a wife for Isaac. Here, Some positive aspects of Jacob's character are on display as he quickly waters Rachel's sheep, but he learns nothing of her character. His assessment of her as wife material is, in this chapter, based solely on physical attraction and not on the basis of prayer and of God's guidance. Now, now don't misunderstand. The meeting at the well was no less providential. That is, God brought it about But there is no sense here of Jacob following the leading of God as there was with Abraham's servant. Bruce Waltke writes, Jacob finds himself unexpectedly at the right time at the right place. However, unlike Abraham's servant, he offers no praise for he has made no petition. On the surface all seems well, but underneath lurks dark trouble. Jacob Joyfully wept aloud, verse 11, after greeting Rachel with a kiss. His hard journey has been fruitful. He has apparently been successful in his mission for a wife, but he was not aware that God also led him to Laban. Laban greets Jacob as a son my bone and my flesh. And then he will go on to treat him as an indentured servant. The author also offers a hint of foreshadowing here. Jacob and Laban are both unaware of just how alike they are. We have already gotten a taste of Jacob's deceptive and grasping nature in previous chapters. But now in Laban, we will encounter one cut from the same cloth. When Abraham's servant had come to Haran... His gold jewelry had attracted Laban's attention and Laban ran out to greet him when he saw how rich this man was. Now Jacob's strength impresses him. This is something I didn't recognize in this story uh, as we see this. Jacob is shown to be this amazing, strong man and so Laban is impressed with him, sees what kind of service Jacob might render and so he sees in Jacob a worksman worth his weight in gold. It continues, verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you ten years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban. Sorry, seven years. I don't know why I read ten. Thank you. Just, yep. Verse 19 Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. What we should understand here, besides the fact I don't know how to count, um, is that Laban is degrading the relationship from a blood relationship between himself and Jacob, down into an economic arrangement. See, he asked, should you work for me for free? But a family member would work for nothing, with the expectation that the loving elder relative would help them to get a jumpstart on building their own home and their own flocks. And so to Uh, say, let's work out some wages for you, is downgrading the relationship from I will care for you because you're my family and you'll work for us because you're our family to I will pay you what you ask. And so instead, Laban treats Jacob as nothing more than a laborer under contract. And their relationship for the next 20 years is that of an oppressive lord over his indentured servant paying off a bride price, not of an uncle helping his blood relative. He invites Jacob to set the price for his labor. But Jacob is not interested in money. He will receive the blessing and inheritance of his father. Instead, he came here in quest of a bride. But he is not in a real good place for negotiation either. Because despite his blessing and inheritance being granted and guaranteed by God, he has come to Haran empty-handed. And so... Uh, To understand here, the purpose of a bride price, to pay for the bride, was not uh, a payment to the father. It was not to enrich the father, but to ensure the protection of the daughter. So a bride price wasn't saying, this is how much your daughter's worth, we'll pay you this much. um, And you get the money and I get the daughter. A bride price was to be kept kept for her security in case her husband abandoned her. So it was a, a, a dowry, and it was not to enrich the parents, but it was to make sure she was cared for. The typical bride price, however, was somewhere between three and four years' wages for a shepherd. So Jacob is, is paying a large premium here because he has nothing to offer up front. Theoretically, then, Laban would garner Jacob's would-be wages instead of paying him and then secure them into a bride price account of some sort so that this security for Rachel would be gathered together. But sadly, Jacob is not the only family member that Laban reduces to an economic opportunity. His daughter's names, Leah and Rachel, mean cow and ew, like as in a female sheep, more unfortunate is that he treats them as livestock fit for bargaining and trading though jacob loved rachel we are never told if she reciprocated his desires later the sisters will speak openly of their treatment at the hands of their father when they receive nothing of the bride price that jacob worked so hard to provide genesis 31:15 are we not regarded by him as foreigners for he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. Leah is described only by her weak eyes, which more often describes something that is tender, gentle, or soft. And so commentators are divided on whether this means that she possessed or lacked beautiful eyes. Either it's saying that she had soft, tender eyes, which was a nice quality, or that somehow she lacked the, the beautiful eyes that were so valued in that culture. They're not sure, or different ones disagree. Most likely, the assessment of the girls is that while Leah is not without striking features, beautiful, tender eyes, she pales in comparison to Rachel's overall beauty. It's unlikely that the author is describing them as the ugly and the pretty one. But clearly, Rachel has this beauty that has enraptured Jacob. And so then when Jacob sets these terms, Laban's answer is, better that I give her to you. And this is shrewdly ambiguous because he has no plans to give her to him. And he does not actually explicitly agree to the terms that Jacob sets forward. And so when Jacob asserts after seven years that it's time to be paid, Laban doesn't answer at all. He just goes and begins to prepare a feast and gather the town people, townspeople, verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and you, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. This part of the story raises some unanswered questions. Did Leah know that she was being used in this way? The gift of her father's female servant, was the customary wedding present, which suggests that the family all understood that it was Leah who was about to be married. So it's not necessary that she's sitting there as a part of this scam. They already have this culture and system where Laban's just giving daughters in payment. And so it's, it, she's being given. That's all she perhaps knows. And we're not, it's not expressly said how Jacob was deceived. The bride was veiled and the wedding chamber at night was very dark. But what the text does not draw attention to is that a wedding feast was a drinking feast. In fact, the word feast here in the Bible means a drinking feast. And so by plying Jacob with wine and then with the combined blindness of the veil and the darkness of night, Laban pulls off his deception just as Jacob had deceived his father Isaac with hairy skin, and the smell of Esau's clothing. And just as Jacob took advantage of his father's blindness, so Laban used the cover of night to outwit Jacob. And when Jacob protests his treatment, Laban feigns moral outrage and reverses the situation by painting it as though Jacob was in the wrong. And the phrase, it is not so done in our country, is said with the force of a rebuke as though Jacob had somehow suggested something that would be a serious violation of custom that would threaten the very fabric of society. He's he's actually rebuking him saying, who would suggest such a thing? Now Jacob would understand how Isaac and Esau felt. The painful experience was God's rebuke of Jacob for deceiving his father to obtain the blessing. Even more pain would be caused by the decision to follow. Jacob would continue to serve Laban, despite this ill treatment of Jacob and of Leah, to marry the woman he still loved. Once again, Rachel is not consulted for her opinion. We can't overly romanticize this story. She too is traded like livestock for Jacob's valuable labor. So Leah has only the week of wedding celebration with her new husband before he goes to cohabitate with her more beautiful sister. Later, we will see she will be forced to trade uh, valuables to her sister in exchange for even a night with her husband. And so through this scenario, these choices of Jacob and of Laban, this family is plagued with strife and rivalry. In fact, it becomes the prime biblical example of why Leviticus 18.18 prohibits a man from marrying the sister of his wife during her lifetime. So this is a unique story. The details are quite unlike any other. The details are not like the details of our life. And yet, as I said as we began, the theme is consistent with those who are chosen of God. So I want to lead you to that Now, there are two undeviating actions of God in the lives of His people that are expressed here in the life of Jacob. Two ways in which God brings about His purposes in the ones that He loves. The first, as we saw in the previous chapters, is that God continues to remind His chosen ones, His people, of His promise to bless them. This is consistent with the chose, those chosen by God in Scripture, God continues to remind them to preach the gospel to them, the good news of what He is freely giving them unconditionally. The blessing of God has already been expressed over Jacob four times now. The first at his birth by prophecy, the second as a result of his deception, followed by a third as now Isaac willingly gets on board with God's plan to bless his younger son. And finally, God himself promised the blessing of Abraham and Isaac to Jacob with the additional promise of his presence with him. God promises abundant blessing, a working of all things for the good of those he chooses, Romans 8.28. Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, and all who are their descendants through faith, Galatians 3.7, receive the promises of God, which are yes and amen, in Christ Jesus our Lord, 2 Corinthians, Corinthians, yeah, 2 Corinthians 1.20, Jesus, whose inheritance we share in through his resurrection from the dead, 1 Peter 1.4, an inheritance imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So right at the beginning of the life of God's people, when He reveals Himself to them and shows them His goodness, the end is already secured. At the very beginning, they are told how the outcome will look. And throughout their lives, God will continue to remind them of His goodness to them. of of Christ's inheritance, which is theirs. Now, they don't know how Christ will procure this inheritance on their behalf at this point, but they trust God. This is the good news in Genesis, the gospel, that God will bless them. And so they know the end from the beginning. But the second thing God does is throughout the middle. It is in the middle that God actually begins to bring about His purposes and secure the end. And so, although God can promise at the beginning of their walk with Him that the end is secured, He will now work these things out in and through them through their lives. And so, along with, as a second thing, along with the continued reminder of the promise of God's blessing to the ones He loves, is the loving discipline of our Heavenly Father. God will effectively discipline His people by making them painfully aware of their sins. And so in Laban, Jacob met his match and his means of discipline. The deception and abuse he suffered at Laban's hand was perfectly fitted for Jacob, designed to bring his own craftiness before his eyes. It was the only way to get through to such a deceiver is for him to see someone else deceptively harm him and be cruel and to hate that and to see, well, how dare he treat me this way? Jacob's endeavors are blessed by God. From the providential meeting at the well to his unintentional marriage to Leah, God is working all things out for good. And this is why we read the entire chapter this morning, although we'll reread it when we go back and preach on that passage. But because not only did Jacob's marriages here result in the 12 tribes of Israel and the fulfillment of God's promise to him to make him a great nation, but marriage to Leah produced his heir, Judah. Judah another younger son chosen by God who would become the ancestor of both King David and of Jesus of Nazareth according to his human nature. you see how through their bad decisions, through the abuse of Laban, through the deception of Jacob, through the deception of Laban, God brings about his purposes. He knew what they would do, planned all along. And so just as God brought about his purposes through Jacob's sin and deception earlier in previous passages. So also, Laban's worst serves to accomplish God's best for Jacob. Jacob needs Leah. He doesn't want her. He gets her. It's God's purpose. God blesses his people through the things that they suffer, even as he disciplines them. We might rightly say that Jacob reaped what he has sown. Galatians 6-7 reiterates an Old Testament principle. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Now, this has been misused and abused, uh, primarily by television evangelists who would lead you to believe that you can earn God's blessing by sowing. And this is absolutely unbiblical. The favor and blessing of God we see in Jacob's life are given to him when? At the beginning. They're already his. He does not earn them. This is where we, by grace, through faith, receive and, and reap what Jesus has sown in his righteousness. But... It is not as though the principle fails. There's no amount of sowing left in your lifetime that you could give enough to earn God's favor. No amount of work, no amount of of service, no amount of money that you could somehow earn the blessing of God. But what one sows, one still also reaps. And so Paul, when he speaks of of giving and sowing, he talks about Sowing in generosity, giving in generosity, and reaping a great reward of generosity. Not money in return for giving, but an increase of generosity. You want to be a more generous person? Begin to give. Begin to sow. God will help you to be more generous. Jacob is deceptive. And so according to this principle, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. The one who deceives will be deceived. Jacob is not the only person to ever need a Laban in his life. God often brings people into the lives of believers as a means of discipline. This family needs each other. Jacob is married to two women who are at odds with each other. There's incredible strife between them and then later between their children. This all works out for the good of God's people. But they are ultimately being disciplined for their behavior and ultimately they need each other both to bring about the blessing of God's people as he disciplines them. So Jacob needs Laban. And Jacob needs Leah. And Rachel needs Leah. And Leah needs Rachel. Ross writes, if we use the story of Jacob as an example, we may say that when we are thrown together with people who are crafty, arrogant, deceitful, contentious, gossipy, or a host of other human sins, before we lament that we have to be around such people, we perhaps should take a long look at ourselves. It may be that some of those traits characterize us so that other people may be part of God's means of disciplining us. I know in my life, whenever someone truly irritates me, it's usually because they're a little bit like me in a way that I hate. So now, don't turn to your wife this morning and say that God is disciplining you by me, or, or vice versa. But we are. We, you know what? Everything that happens in our lives serves to bless us, ultimately, but discipline us to the point of blessing as well. And so if we can take every hard relationship, every circumstance, everything that happens is something that God allows both to bring about blessing in our lives and to discipline us. If I have to listen to a long, boring sermon and it's the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life, I can at that moment say, God, how are you disciplining me (laughs) by the fact that I have to listen to this? If I am married to a contentious spouse, I can ask myself, God, what are you working out? What, what, what are your purposes in this right now for me? Not just how can I change him or change her. What are you disciplining in me? What are you exposing in me as these things are happening to me? Relationships in the church and outside the church. Struggles, trials of many kinds. Through which, James 1, we are to rejoice. Because we know through it God is bringing about character and steadfastness in us. God is disciplining us. Hebrews 12, 6-7. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. And chastises, that's rebukes, every son whom He receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. Why do we have to endure? Through trials of many kinds, for discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? When we speak of being under God's discipline, we can have a lot of negative connotations that. It should not bring up thoughts of God's anger towards us. When things are not going my way, I will sometimes say, I wonder what I did... That God is mad at me right now. The reality is God does not discipline those he is angry with. God disciplines those he loves. He loves us and tenderly disciplines us. He's not giving us what we deserve. It's not punishment. He's not giving us as we deserve or otherwise we would receive damnation. When we go through trials of many kinds, it is not as though God is angry towards us. It should not be understood as though we have done something particularly egregious. It's not like, well, what major sin did I do that God would allow these hard things in my life? No. We've all sinned. And not only have we sinned, but we all are sinners in need of the gentle discipline of our God. Continually and always, our Father at work in us. And so even now, as believers, even if we're mature believers, serving God in so many ways, there we still need much more discipline. Discipline is not the result of a particularly egregious sin. Discipline is what a loving father does with their child that is not yet perfect. I don't discipline my children because I hate who they are. I discipline my children because they're not yet perfect. Because I love them. So God disciplines the ones he loves. If we are experiencing no discipline right now from God, watch out. That's a scary place. We are not legitimate children, Hebrews goes on to say. Those who are legitimate children are being disciplined by their loving Father. It is a delight to be under the discipline of the Lord. His chastisement is something to be celebrated. By it, we know that we are his beloved children. God's presence, as with Jacob, with us, does not entail a life of ease, but a life of hardship through which the believer is perfected. So think about those most difficult people in your life. Think about those most difficult situations. Think about the things that are bothering you the most right now. This is the loving reproof of your heavenly Father. Through it, he is building character in us. Through this, we are experiencing transformation. But it is also not as though God is unfairly allowing us to go through hard things for our good. Hear what I'm saying. It's not as though God is unfairly allowing bad things that we don't deserve so that we will get stronger or that our character will be built. We are being disciplined. We are sinners who have not done everything perfect. And so our God, who cares about our perfection, is using every trial in our lives, both by grace to bless us outright, so that His mercy and grace to us is that every single one of these things works out to actually bless us as these Uh, as this example in Jacob where all these horrible things that happened to him are actually ultimately served the purposes of bringing about what God had promised to bless him with. But at the same time, God uses the things to bless us outright. It is also a blessing through discipline. And in this way, bringing about his purposes in us, transforming us. Lack of suffering is not a reliable sign of God's blessing and reward. When things are peaceful and we have in abundance, it does not mean that God is happy with us. Just as the vice versa, when we suffer, it does not mean God is angry with us. First of all, we know that, as we have said, God's blessing includes discipline. But if God rewarded us immediately by alleviating suffering, we would confuse morality with pleasure. You see, if we would do the right thing and I would immediately respond in a time of lack of suffering and and peace, we would just confound morality with pleasure. We would use God for our selfish indulgences. Our ethics would be based on doing good to get good, which would be entirely self-seeking and the opposite of the gospel. But by gapping reward from virtue, by making there be this time frame of trials of many kinds in between God's promise of blessing and the final blessing, God allows the believer to develop spiritual graces such as faith, perseverance, character, and hope. Hence, the believer glories in tribulation, celebrates, and has joy through trials of many kinds. It is not just as though we have only a future hope. It's not just I have to get through this time to get the good thing on the other side, but it is also this is God's blessing. This is God's love extended to me. This is the discipline I so desperately need to be transformed into the image of His Son. Romans 5 1 to 5 reads, Therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God So this is this first part of Jacob's life promised blessing secure inheritance Granted from the get-go, we have been justified by faith. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. But verse 3 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit Who has been given to us. And so the love of God, church, comes to us in two movements. He speaks good news to us, the gospel. He proclaims his blessing, undeserved, unmerited, and unconditional. He keeps it for us. We know the end from the beginning. And he reminds us of this continually throughout our lives. And actually, it is the purpose of the church to fellowship in this gospel, to proclaim this gospel one to another and to unbelievers as well, talking about the goodness of our God. Through this, we are built up and sustained. Through this, our hope is secure. But with this promise, with this hope, comes suffering, trials of many kinds. These are the two tools, and I'm not saying the Bible doesn't have other tools as well in God's tool belt, but two tools we see here God using in the life of Jacob, the repetitive proclamation of the good news and trials of many kinds through which he is disciplined, and ultimately God brings about what he has promised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We recognize that in your power and in your rule, you bring about all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. But Lord, we often fail to walk as perfect images, we often fail to show Christ in the way we live our lives. We fail to put on Christ. We fail to walk in the Spirit. You do not condemn us. You are not angry with us, but you discipline those you love. And Lord, we thank you for this too. May we see the trials and sufferings of our lives As your sovereign work as well, bringing about every good thing that you have promised to us and rightly disciplining us as a loving father who cares for his children. Lord, when I angrily cry out, I do not deserve this, (laughs) rebuke me by your spirit. For I, I do deserve and I deserve much, much worse. In your mercy and grace, you do not treat us as we deserve, but you lovingly reprove, convict, and transform your people. God, I, I, my, my greatest desire as we look at this passage is that you would transform us to be people who joyfully go through trial because of this knowledge, that we know that you are producing good for us through it and transforming us through your discipline. So that when things go awry, when difficult people are in our lives, through trials of many kinds, we would rejoice and give thanks to you. We sing, Lord, of giving you praise and thanks even as you give and take away. I pray now that we would understand that song, that we would give you glory and praise, thanksgiving even as you give and take away. Do this in us to glorify the name of Christ Jesus among us and in this world, we pray. Amen.